Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. Parental leave policies have garnered significant attention in the past year, and much of it has been positive. Tech companies such as Etsy and Facebook are offering more time off for parents, and New York recently became the fourth state to pass a family leave program that guarantees paid time off for almost every employee, regardless of gender. Unfortunately, this doesn't mean new mothers won't continue to face workplace discrimination, both during maternity leave and as they transition back to the office. In fact, women's earnings decrease 4% for each child they have, according to a 2014 study published by research group Third Way. Here today to talk about how to overcome these obstacles is Allison Downey, whose new book, Here's the Plan, Your Practical, Tactical Guide to Advancing Your Career During Pregnancy and Parenthood, is a blueprint for all women looking to succeed in the workplace while also raising children. Allison is also the founder of WeSpring, a startup that helps new and expecting parents get advice about what they need for their babies. Allison Downey, thank you for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Thank you. So your book is something that I think I wished I had had when I was going through the process of deciding to get pregnant and figuring out my career. I think it was also a product. You wrote this book, it seems, because you didn't have a plan when you were pregnant. And you also had some pretty extreme circumstances during your first pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I did. I was someone who considered myself unstoppable up until my pregnancy that, you know, I saw a pregnancy as like an obstacle that I could overcome easily and and did not feel that it was going to slow me down in any way, shape or form. I had just finished business school. I started a new job on Wall Street. And about six months later, I got pregnant. I then maybe three or four months after that experienced some complications. And before the complications, I was, I mean, I hate to use this phrase, but I was crushing it in my job. I was bringing in billionaire clients. I was doing really, really well. So I thought that when I had some complications and ran into some problems that the people in my office would be supportive and they would give me the little leg up that I needed to, you know, scale that wall, <laughs> that obstacle. And instead they just disappeared. You're not joking. Like they literally disappeared. They completely disappeared. So you sent a note to your manager at the time and said that you were having complications. And I think you felt like you might, maybe you could work from home if you had to be on bed rest or continue to work in some way. Yeah. My uh, my job was something I could do primarily by email and phone. And occasionally someone would need to, you know, meet in person with a billionaire. But I felt like there was someone in my office who could do that on my behalf. So after I heard from my doctor that I needed to be completely off my feet, that I could lose the pregnancy. And I was 22 weeks pregnant at that point. And and she said, at 23 weeks, you have a 10% survival rate. At 24 weeks, it's 50%. And then it starts to climb up from there. And I was I was terrified, but I wasn't scared about my job. I felt like I could do my job from anywhere. And when I reached out to my office, I just wanted to do a quick call to discuss logistics, figure out who would be meeting with the people that I had been working on bringing into the firm. And if there's anything I needed to know to help keep moving the balls forward. And I didn't hear anything back. I sent that first email, silence. I called the next day, left a voicemail, silence. And it went on like that for two weeks. 
can we skip ahead and can you just tell us the resolution of this yeah. and, and how and also just how that impacted the rest of your career and where you are now? Yeah. So the good news is that I had a healthy, happy, almost full term baby and, you know, had a wonderful experience bonding with him. And I did have paid maternity leave, which most people in this country do not have. But it was really clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to go back to that job, that everything I had built there had basically turned to dust in the six months that I couldn't work. And I knew that uh, I also couldn't go back into a job that treated women like I had been treated. So I started interviewing when my son was about four weeks old. And because I had spent a lot of time over my career up until that point investing and building a network, I landed on my feet. I had three job offers by the time Logan was eight weeks old. And they were exciting and fascinating and interesting and well-paid job offers. So I was able to transition pretty easily into a new job. But what was not easy about the whole experience is how I felt inside, that my confidence was obliterated by this experience. And like I said, up until that point, I felt like someone who was unstoppable. And I was just so angry that this this thing that I felt like should be inconsequential and small was something that really stopped me in that career path. So part of the book is talking about how women can plan for their careers when they decide to have children and when they're pregnant. What, I mean, one of the learnings from, from your experience is that your networking prior, your, your career prior to having children was all about networking. And so you were able to call on that network when you needed to. That was a huge learning, I bet, that you really, we need to set those things up before we decide to have children so that we are taken care of if our employee isn't the one who's going to be there for us. Yeah. That's my number one piece of advice that uh, that women really do need to invest in their networks and they need to make sure that they have built up the support system around them, that they have seated advocates for themselves across their industry and in other industries as well. And in your experience, is that usually a network of women? Uh, it doesn't have to be. You know, my primary tool for building my network has been making connections of other people that, you know, when people think of networking, they often think that they need to show up at some conference and exchange business cards with people or go to some, you know, early morning breakfast where there's a speaker and make sure that they have collected five cards by the time they have left. It's worth doing that. But once you have kids, it's really hard to carve out the time for that. And I don't want to be unrealistic about how much time women do have on their days when they have a full-time job and a baby. So I think that just making connections, making thoughtful connections is the best way to grow your own network. So when you meet someone, you know, go in your head to who do I know who could help this person? And can I make an introduction of those two people? And it starts to become muscle memory if you do it often enough that uh, it doesn't have to be something that you are, you are born doing. You don't have to be a natural connector. But if you practice at it, your brain just starts to go there automatically. Like you know, the first thing that will pop into your head when you meet someone is, oh, you should meet my friend so-and-so. And it just starts to happen. And then all of those people are then grateful to you and want to help you because you've been so helpful to them. What are the other things you recommend women do as they approach the time when they're thinking about getting pregnant? And I think it's valuable even when you're not in that point in your career is to really think and take a moment each week to write down what you have accomplished so that it doesn't get sort of fuzzy and vague and you really have a 
document, whether it's on your phone or, a, you know, a Microsoft Word document that you keep on your computer where you can write down these very specific wins. Do you do that? I do. I, in my research for the book, was told by someone, and this just stuck with me, that women spend so much time worrying about what they haven't done that we rarely stop and celebrate what we have accomplished. So, you know, as after that interview, I started putting into practice this idea of writing down what I've done every week. And sometimes it's mundane, but, you know, I, I do get lost in this overwhelming sense of um, unaccomplishment <laughs> that there feels like there's so much on the to-do list all the time, but you don't really reflect all that much on, on what you have accomplished. And it makes it easier when it's time for your performance review or time for me, for instance, to write an update to the investors in my company to be able to just call on that and see it all in writing in one place. One of the things you mentioned this before, but we are one of the only industrialized nations that does not have a federal policy for federal paid family leave for maternity leave and paternity leave and any other kind of leave. We're making small strides and New York recently passed a law that will go into effect in a couple of years, which is tremendous, but not everyone lives in New York. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, this is an issue that I can get really incensed about when I think about the gymnastics that the women I know and myself and how we had to try to figure out a career and taking care of children in a country that doesn't support us at all. My frustration didn't really get me anywhere. I'm wondering what is what is your message to women who don't have that safety net and do have to deal with this kind of backwards system that we're a part of? What's the best way forward? Oh, I wish I had a good answer for that. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's an opportunity right now because we're starting to see this groundswell change that we're, you know, we're seeing the first ripples in what I hope will soon be a tidal wave toward equality in the workplace and affording parents leave, not just affording women leave. I think that when people talk about maternity leave, it is, um, it's dangerous because it winds up labeling women as someone who will need some time off from work at the some point at some point in the near future and and men don't have that same label. So if we're talking about parental leave and we get to a place where it's the norm for both men and women to take an extended stretch of time to bond with their baby, bring this new child into the world, I think it's going to change everything. I think it changes the workplace and it also changes the home environment. When um, I had my first child, my husband was working for a German company, and he had more paid leave than I did. Yeah, I, I hear that quite often <laughs> it was now. awesome. Yeah. He had six, pay, six weeks of paid leave, and I had four. I interviewed someone who was working at Change.org, and he had 16 weeks of paid leave. And ironically, his wife was working for the Department of Health and Human Services, <laughs> and she had zero weeks of paid leave because it was before there was any federal mandated leave for government employees. It's so depressing. I know. <laughs> it's so depressing. What do you... A lot of women struggle with the question, a lot of men too, you know, do I go back to my old job? How do I, especially in an environment where we don't have governmental support and we can't take any kind of extended leave and be guaranteed of our jobs being there when we get back or being paid while we're off, it makes the equation of whether or not to go back to work really complicated. And for most people, it's not even a question because financially it's not 
feasible not to go back to work. With people who do have the the option of choosing, how do you suggest they make that choice? I think it's um, I think there can be some devastating career repercussions from taking time off to care for children. And that's really the sad truth. Yeah. Well, it's it it is. It's such a dangerous thing that, you know, they've been seeing in Germany that where there's two years of paid leave that it's really hurting women's careers because uh, when they come back, they're just not able to catch up. They they aren't seen as as relevant. And, you know, another really big factor in women's calculation about going back is the cost of childcare. The cost of childcare is outrageous. And, you know, in my Wall Street job, because I had base salary and then would be paid bonus on top of it, like I would have barely been squeaking by on my base salary. And because I hadn't been able to work for six months and wasn't allowed to work while I was on disability, I wouldn't have had a bonus. It would have been non-existent. So it is a really tough question. It's a tough thing to figure out. I think it is important to think about the long term and even as painful as it is to go back into work and feel like you're only clearing 20% of your salary after childcare expenses or 10% or, you know, even just breaking even, it's an investment in your long-term career that your children are going to have their own full-time jobs within five years of being <laughs> born. They're going to get on the school bus and go mm-hmm. off to kindergarten and they're going to be there all day. And it's really important that when they do that, you have something in your life that's fulfilling. And if you step entirely away from work, it's hard to get back. I'm not saying that you can't change things up and you can't kind of rejigger your professional life. Maybe you become a consultant for a stretch of time. Um, even if you decide you do want to take time off for one, two, three years, be careful about staying relevant. Show up at the networking events if you're not going to work. Go to the conferences, read the industry papers, try and take on an occasional consulting project here and there. So people still think of you. You're still top of mind for them. One of the things that's really difficult, and I experienced this, and you talk about this in the book, for women who do go back to work is if you are breastfeeding, how you make the, <laughs> make that work in a in an office culture. I was lucky enough with my first child that my boss was a woman. She was a mother. And for the first three months, the sec- I was off for three months. And then for the second three months, she allowed me to work from home so I could breastfeed, which is kind of extraordinary. Every woman I talk to who has had this, you know, has had to make these choices and lug around their stupid pump has <laughs> like just, you know, it is an exhausting kind of humiliating experience. When I did finally go back, there was no private room in our shared workspace. And I sat in a bathroom stall with an extension cord three times a day. Nothing makes you feel more professional than <laughs> than squatting in a toilet stall uh, with, with, no a, top on. with no top on and a big <laughs> big pump. What is your advice for women who really do want to try to continue to breastfeed but have really challenging situations? And what are the laws and what are they owed in our country in terms of places to to breast to bre- use a breast pump or breastfeed? Yeah. So I I always felt when I was pumping in my office, like I was doing long division in my head all day long, that if I pumped at 930 and I had that meeting at 10, then I could make it to the 11 a.m. offsite and get back to my office for 1230 to pump again. And it just it was that calculus in my head all day long. And it's it's 
it's depleting. It's emotionally and mentally depleting to constantly thinking about that. And it is amazing when women are able to work from home for a stretch of time afterwards so they can continue to breastfeed. Um, the pumping's really hard. And it's hard for a number of reasons. It's hard logistically. It's hard for some women to get a letdown when they're pumping so they can't produce very much milk. Um, it's embarrassing to say, I need to go pump in my office. And, you know, the, the hurdles are just really brutal and really hard. The laws do afford you a private space to pump that is not a bathroom. So your company is responsible for finding some way for you to be able to pump in your office in a way that is sanitary. You know, someone described having to pump in her bathroom. She said it was like I was preparing my kids breakfast on a dirty bathroom floor. <sighs> and that really is what it feels like. Um, the breast pump bag is another big challenge that one of the women I interviewed said that when she was walking around with it, she felt like she was walking around with an asterisk <laughs> that she, you know, she was a pumping mother and, um, you know, there's, there's nothing that makes it easy except to know that you're part of a community that's doing this and that other working mothers understand and we empathize and we salute you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that community a little bit. I think that you interviewed more than 50 women for the book. Yeah, almost 75. Almost 75 women for the book. And um, you also run are the CEO of a company called WeSpring, which is about allowing parents to share information about products and also give each other advice. Community is something that we often lack in our, in our current culture as as mothers, especially in the early days. And as you note, and I've heard this from a million people and experienced it myself, new motherhood can be incredibly isolating. What do you recommend to women who are feeling that isolation and don't really know where to go? So when I was researching my book, in addition to doing all those interviews, I sent out a survey to the WeSpring community and got about 2,000 responses from women. And I asked what one word they would use to describe their maternity leave. And short was the most common, <laughs> but lonely was also really high up there as well, uh, that you do feel really isolated as a new parent. You're home alone with a new baby and no one to talk to all day long. And that sense of isolation can carry over back to work when you are there and you're feeling alone. And even early in pregnancy, when you're not able to talk about your pregnancy because you're in your first trimester or even a little bit into your second trimester, it just feels so isolating and you do feel so lonely. There are plenty of resources that you can reach out to for support. There are tons of online groups that people feel some sense of community in. Lots of local listservs help people make connections in their own communities. And I think you have to really work at it. You have to be mindful that once you are recovered enough to make it out of your house, <laughs> and that amount of time is different for every person, uh, find a parent group. Go to something that's going to put you face-to-face -face with other mothers with young children. I found this breastfeeding support group on the Upper West Side when I lived in New York. And I went, I lugged my my breast friend pillow and my baby <laughs> and the stroller and all the other accoutrements that I needed to breastfeed successfully at that time. And, um, you know, met at some synagogue on the Upper West Side. And there were 12 other mothers there who all had babies within a week or two of my son's age. And we passed around this piece of paper and everyone wrote down their email address. And it became this little email group that a bunch of them are coming to my book launch party tomorrow night. And it's been five years. So, you know, we had that sense of community with kids all the same age just because we stumbled into this breastfeeding support group. And there are lots of things like that out there that will, you know, give you that sense of 
of community and support that I think is so important for new parents. I remember when I stumbled into my parent group um, after my son was born, I remember looking at this group of women and realizing that there's no one else in the world, not my husband, not my mother, not any of my friends who would actually cared about the things that I cared about at that moment, which was only sleep and eat, eating, sleeping and eating. And everyone was so interested and I was so interested (laughs) in their really boring (laughs) sleeping and eating tales as well. And nobody... If you're not in that moment in time, it's really the most boring stuff to talk about. But when I was in that group, I felt I felt like I was being heard. Totally. It's <laughs> like, what swaddle are you using? Yeah. Are you doing the five S's? What bottle is your baby taking? Do you have different flanges for your pump? It's all of that stuff. You talk about before, during, and after a pregnancy, it being super important for women to be very clear and direct with their employees about what their needs are. I like that in theory, and I think that's great advice. I think that most women and find it a little bit difficult to talk directly sometimes about what they want for fear that they're, quote, asking for too much, for fear that there will be some kind of psychological penalty that they'll pay in terms of, you know, oh, she's already asking for stuff. She hasn't even had the baby yet. She's not going to be as, you know, as uh, great at her job because she's going to be distracted with this baby. I've, I've seen it often with people who are talking to male bosses about what they need. But I think it's I think it happens with women, female bosses, too. There is a fear around maternity leave in the office and what's going to happen to that employee. Is she going to come back? Is she going to come back but be exhausted and not really um, on her game? Is she going to come back and be relying a lot on her, you know, people in the office to take over the things that she can't do anymore? How do you recommend people navigate that? There's a lot of ambivalence about it. Yeah. Well, I think I think what you said is the most important thing to be mindful of, that people make a lot of assumptions about pregnant women and what they want and what they need. And, you know, a lot of times those assumptions are totally wrong. You know, that's that's really what I think happened to me in, in my case, where I didn't hear back from anyone in my office and then was shunted out on disability leave without ever talking to my manager again. I think the assumption there, and it was probably a well-meaning assumption, was she needs to focus on her health. And that was the opposite of what was true. My doctor had said it would be good for me to work while I was on bed rest because it's so isolating and it's terrible for your mental health. So working would give me some sense of tie to humanity, um, right. you know, rather than just being this like growing whale on my sofa. Right. So, uh, so the assumptions are really dangerous. And I think when it's, um, you know, time for women to speak up, it's, it's important for them to speak up to chip away at those assumptions to, you know, actually sit down, make a list of all the assumptions someone could be making about you, whether it's, you're not going to come back to the office or whether you're going to want a lighter workload, or you're not going to want to travel for work anymore, or you wouldn't be interested in a project that would require you to come back from maternity week, leave two weeks early, make a list of them and then proactively and deliberately correct them. You don't have to do it in a way that's defensive, but you can say to your boss, 
hey, my doctor said I can travel until my seventh month, so I'd still really like to go to that conference in California. Or I want you to know that if something comes up while I'm on maternity leave that could be really exciting for me in my career, it's okay to call me. And it's perfectly fine for women to want to reduce their responsibilities or take a little bit of a step back for a stretch of time after their baby is born. But I encourage them to put a finite time period on it. And when they're talking about it with their employer and you you speak up and you say, I'd like to be able to work from home for one day a week, to not talk about why it's good for you, talk about why it's good for the company and put a time period on it. Say, hey, I'd really like to be able to work from home for the first three months after the baby is born for two days a week because it's going to give me more time to work because I'm not going to have commuting time and I'll be able to be so much more efficient. And I just see it as something I'd like to do for three months. And if at the end of the three months, it's going really well and it's really working for you and it's working for the company, at that point, you bring it up and say, this has been really effective. I've been able to do so much more because I've been working from home these two days a week. I'd like to extend it out for another three months and talk in finite periods. In addition to talking openly with a boss or supervisor, I've found in my career, I've been at both ends of the spectrum when it comes to, there was a time when my children were young and I left the office at five on the dot because I had to get home by six on the dot to to pick them up at childcare. And I never left the office at five without feeling horribly guilty about the rest of the people who were still there and who I knew would be there for another couple of hours. And, you know, I would log back on after my kid or kids were asleep, but you feel bad and you feel like you're missing out. And in my case, I was working at a news organization. It's not like there wasn't news happening between those two, you know, between the period of when I left and when it was bedtime. You know, now I'm in a situation as a manager where I have people on my team who are leaving at five on the dot. I, of course, understand it because I've been there, but there is a there is tension in every office that I've ever been in um, among the parents and the non-parents. And I'm not sure I ever figured out the best way to handle that. So I think it's almost more important to think about and reflect on how you're going to talk to your colleagues about your pregnancy and your children um, than it is to talk about your boss, think about how you talk about it with your boss, that your boss is hopefully trained to be supportive <laughs> and has gotten some coaching from HR on how to handle those situations. And it it literally is their job to manage you and support you. But your colleagues don't have that same sense of obligation. And they're the ones who are shouldering some of the burden when you are absent. I had a business school professor who taught an entire class around this idea of discussing the undiscussables and putting those things out on the table. And the intersection of work and family isn't undiscussable for most people, that, you know, managers are fearful of stepping in it and saying something that's going to get them in trouble. And and so do peers and colleagues. They're afraid to bring it up because they don't want to be discriminatory or offensive uh, or do something that is going to you know incite legal repercussions. And then employees are fearful of talking about these issues because they don't want to send the wrong signal about their commitment. 
And it's ironic because the easiest way to send the wrong signal is to send no signal at all. And if you speak up and, and give the right signal, it's going to help things. So as hard as those conversations are, I encourage women to actually have an open, frank discussion with their colleagues and even put it out there say, I feel terrible every time I walk out of this office at five o'clock because I know that everyone else is working so hard. But I want you to know that I cram as much as I can into those nine to five hours that I'm there. And I'm thinking about work when I'm not there and I'm logging back on afterward. So I want you to know that I'm not relaxing and this is not something that I am, you know, loafing off at the office because now I have kids. I'm working as hard as ever. I'm working harder and I want to do everything I can to support you and your work as well. So that brings me to my last question, which is a tricky one. I think that in a lot of ways, technology has been a boon for working moms. And I think in a lot of ways, it is it is a yoke that keeps us tied to the office, even when we're supposed to be, quote, off. I found through both of my children's young lives that I spent half my brain was with them. Half my brain was looking at my phone. Um, I look back on it with a lot of regret. Um, and I had a lot of fear of losing touch with the office, even in those hours. So I'm not sure what the answer is. I think that, but I wonder if you have suggestions for how women can put parameters around the office when they are home without feeling like I was so scared of being, of missing something. Yeah. And, and it's something I struggle with all the time, but I try and remind myself that quality time is worth more than quantity time. And it's very hard to have quality time when you're checking your email every 10 minutes. It's impossible. So, so I try and put my phone in the drawer when I get home. So I get home, I, you know, relieve our au pair around 530. I put my phone in the drawer and that's... Do you lock it? (laughs) I I don't lock it. We're renovating our kitchen right now and we're putting a special charging station right by the front door. So that's where all the devices stay. Uh, Because it's also a signal that you're starting to send to your kids that, um, that, you know, you need to be yoked to technology. And, you know, when my kids are old enough to have an iPhone, I don't want their memory of me to be constantly on it. I don't want them to feel like that's the right thing. So I try to put it away. I also, during the day, try and confine email to certain stretches of time because otherwise it gets sucked into it. Someone told me recently that email triggers the same brain response as drugs. Yes, cocaine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I I try and be mindful of that and, and keep it separate. I know it's so much easier said than done, but, you know, half an hour with my kids where I'm 100% focus on them is it makes me feel better than three hours with them in which I'm checking my email every 10 minutes. Allison Downey, thank you so much for being on The Labor of Love today. Thank you for having me. This is great. Allison Downey is the author of Here's the Plan. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. As always, if you'd like to be a guest on our show or if there is a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at itunes.com slash panoply or at panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Thank you.